This is an ABC Radio National podcast. For full details, abc.net.au slash rn. I'm Geraldine Duke. Welcome once more to the Boyer Lectures for 2006. Our lecturer is departing Reserve Bank Governor Ian McFarlane. His series, The Search for Stability, charts the economic evolution of the world's leading economies, and particularly Australia's, since World War II. Last week, in the long expansion, he explained how a range of macroeconomic initiatives have guided us through a record period of growth and sustained low inflation. But... Do economic downturns remain just as much of a threat? Is it too much to hope that the evolution of monetary policy has come to an end? Or is the process of continual policy adjustment eternal? Challenges for the future. It's the final instalment in the Boyer Lectures for 2006. Now, here's Ian McFarlane. In the first half of the 20th century, before discretionary fiscal and monetary policy had evolved, the major macroeconomic failure was the rise in unemployment during the Great Depression of the 1930s. In the post-war period, when discretionary fiscal and monetary policy were widely used, the major macroeconomic failure was the rise of inflation, which reached a peak in the 1970s. I have argued in the first five lectures that the rise of inflation, which affected all developed countries, was mainly due to an incompatibility between short-term policy incentives and long-term economic stability. In the short run, that is over an 18-month to two-year horizon, it is usually possible to achieve more growth and lower unemployment by running expansionary policies and accepting higher inflation. Thus, in the short run, or the political horizon, higher inflation can be seen to lead to lower unemployment. But in the long run, we know this is wrong. The relationship is the other way around. The low inflation periods are the ones where we have achieved good growth and low unemployment. The high inflation periods are where we suffered high unemployment. A similar conflict arises once inflation is entrenched. To get rid of the inflation, we have to put up with the pain of higher interest rates for a time. Thus, anti-inflation policy is seen to be characterised by high interest rates and is therefore politically unattractive. But when it has succeeded in its central task, anti-inflationary monetary policy allows the return to sustainably low interest rates. Again, the short-run incentives to governments are the opposite of the long-run needs for economic stability. At times, such as in the 1970s in the United Kingdom, people seriously questioned whether the combination of democratic institutions and economic stability was achievable. The evolution of demand management policies, particularly monetary policy, over the past 30 years has largely been an exercise in overcoming this conflict between short-term incentives and long-term stability. The experiment with monetary targeting in the mid-1970s and the more exotic schemes such as currency board or return to a commodity standard proposed at the end of the 1980s were part of this evolution. Finally, during the 1990s, in line with the experience of a number of other countries, Australia settled on a monetary policy framework 
based on the two pillars of inflation targeting and an independent central bank. That is, it gave the central bank a mandate to achieve a specified inflation outcome. At the same time, fiscal policy has been given a medium-term focus so that it no longer attempts to fine-tune fluctuations in output growth during an expansion. Over the past 15 years, this approach to macroeconomic policy has been very successful. Can we now rest on our laurels? In particular, has the evolution of monetary policy come to an end, or will future policymakers have to modify the framework just as we modified the one we inherited? That is the subject of this lecture, and in it I will present some conjectures about where the risks to stability could come from. Obviously, risks may arise from many non-economic quarters, including war, civil breakdown, epidemics and so on, but other people are better qualified to assess these. Similarly, there are economic risks such as the effects of declining populations, productivity slowdowns, conflicts over income shares and the return of protectionism that should not be discounted, but which are also outside my sphere of expertise and not directly related to monetary policy. And there are the traditional risks of inflation and recession. I am not so optimistic as to think that these threats have been completely overcome or that the business cycle is dead. Monetary policy will still have to grapple with these challenges and there will be pain and political controversy from time to time. No conceivable monetary policy can completely avoid these age-old problems, but the current framework for monetary policy is the best we have found to handle these challenges. Instead, in this lecture, I will concentrate on those risks of a monetary or financial nature that could call into question the continued application of the current monetary policy framework. The biggest single challenge starts from the recognition that as an economy becomes more developed, its financial side grows a lot faster than its real side. As a result, economic outcomes will depend more and more on what happens in asset markets and less on what happens in the real side of the economy, such as in the goods and labour markets. Not only has the financial side of the economy become bigger, leverage, which is the extent to which debt is used to buy assets, has increased, financial products have become more complex, the incentives in the system have changed, and the household sector has become more exposed to asset markets. I will discuss each of these five developments in turn before examining their implications for monetary policy. On the first development, it is well known that as countries develop and become richer, companies and households increasingly acquire financial assets and liabilities, the stock of which rises faster than incomes. It is a normal part of the process of economic development. Indeed, it is one of the most important means by which economic growth occurs. One obvious sign of this is the upward trend in the ratio of the stock of financial assets to GDP. In Australia, this increased from 100% in 1980 to over 300% in 2005. By virtue of their greater size, asset markets are now more likely to impact on business and household decision-making than formerly. Second, as financial markets become developed, the stock of assets, both financial and physical, is increasingly acquired with debt. In earlier times, nearly all borrowing was through banks and various regulations meant that credit was rationed. This often denied credit to worthy borrowers and had the effect of limiting the amount of leverage in the economy. Now, in the deregulated world, where financial markets compete with banks to provide credit, borrowers are much better served and the economy has become more highly leveraged. While this has contributed to the growth of the economy, it means that if an adverse development, such as a large fall in asset prices, 
or a recession were to occur, the effect on the economy would be greater than in the past. The third effect has been the enormous amount of financial innovation that has occurred. The increase in complexity is most notable in the wholesale financial markets, where the banks, investment banks, broking houses, hedge funds and corporations are the big players. There has been a large increase in the capacity to trade financial claims and to liquefy formerly illiquid assets and liabilities. The rise in futures and options markets has assisted this, as has the growth of more complicated instruments such as credit derivatives. All measures of turnover in the equity, debt, futures and over-the-counter derivative markets show extraordinarily high levels compared with a decade or two ago. Has the increase in complexity made financial markets riskier? The jury is still out on this question. Some observers, notably Alan Greenspan, think that it has made the system less risky because it has allowed greater diversification and given participants greater ability to hedge their risks. These are now more widely distributed to insurance companies, reinsurance companies, pension funds, mutual funds and to many households. In addition, these complex financial instruments have allowed banks to manage their risks better by transferring them to other sectors. This is an improvement on earlier periods when the economy depended unduly on banks with their risky balance sheets of short-term liabilities and long-term illiquid assets. On the other hand, some observers have doubts about whether the newer holders of these risks fully understand what they are taking on, particularly as many of the newer financial instruments are extremely complex. The fourth issue is the change in incentives in the system, perhaps in such a way as to encourage the build-up of risky positions. Competition among the various managers of pooled investments, those working for mutual funds, investment banks, brokers and hedge funds, is intense, and their rewards dependent on achieving a high enough rate of return to build or maintain a large fund size. In order to increase return, there is an incentive for them to take on more risk, particularly to hold assets that offer a high expected return in order to compensate holders for the possibility that, in rare circumstances, there will be a huge loss. This is known as tail risk. The combination of performance-based pay and short job tenure is increasingly common throughout the business sector, not just in finance. It can have the effect of encouraging managers to chase short-term profits, even if long-term risks are being incurred, because if the risks eventuate, they will show up on someone else's shift. Once some fund managers start to do this, there is an incentive for others to follow as they cannot let their current rates of return fall below their competitors. This is known as herding. They are comforted by the fact that even if the investments turn out badly, the poor performance will be widespread, and so the individual fund manager is unlikely to suffer unduly. Conversely, there is little incentive to go against the herd, because even if the individual fund manager is right in the long run, the penalty for cutting back too soon is severe. The combination of willingness to take on tail risk and the tendency for herding can lead to large rises in asset prices and the shrinkage of risk premia, the extra return you should earn for holding more risky assets. This greatly increases the chance of a bubble in asset markets developing. The fifth development is the increasing exposure of individual households to developments in asset markets. In some cases voluntarily and in other cases involuntarily, households have clearly taken on more risk. Some of it is of the inevitable long-term trend nature that I described previously, but some of it is more recent and the result of financial innovation. 
The best measures of the household sector's exposure are the degree of leverage, which I have already defined as the ratio of debt to total value of assets, and the debt servicing ratio, which is interest paid as a proportion of income. In Australia, both of these ratios are now at a peak, the first having risen steadily over the past decade, the second more recently. Why have households taken on this greater leverage? Partly it is a result of being richer. They no longer feel they have to wait to acquire something. They can afford to do so immediately via the use of credit. And partly it is because people feel more secure so they can take on more debt. Obviously the generation that could remember the Depression was very risk-averse, and those who remember the 1970s and 1980s still retain an element of caution. But those whose attitudes were formed by the long expansion have much less fear of financial overcommitment. There are others who have taken on higher levels of debt than they desire because they felt it was the only path to home ownership, given the strong rise in house prices over the past decade. As well as debt, households have also acquired a lot of financial assets. Over 50% of adults now own shares directly and many more through their superannuation funds. Financial innovation has also played an important role. Banks and mortgage brokers now actively seek customers and are prepared to lend more to good borrowers than formerly and to lend to many borrowers who would not have previously qualified for a loan. Loan to valuation ratios of 100% are now available from some mortgage lenders. Margin loans for share purchases are now easily obtainable and there has been a high take-up of credit cards. There are other developments of a structural nature that have had the effect of increasing the financial risk borne directly by households. These developments come about because other sectors are able to shift risk onto the household sector. They do not necessarily set out to do so, but that is the result. Retirement incomes policy is a good example. Prior to the introduction of the old age pension, households assumed all the risk of longevity, that is, the possibility of living beyond one's working life and therefore having to be supported by some other source of income. The old age pension shifted this risk from families onto the government and therefore to taxpayers in general. For some citizens, mainly public servants and employees of large corporations such as banks, defined benefit pensions were provided which allowed them to retire on a pension that was a proportion of their final salary. Recently, we have seen many corporations and the federal and state governments winding up their defined benefit pension schemes and replacing them with defined contribution schemes, whereby the final size of the pension depends on the earnings rate of the fund. In other words, it depends on what happens to share prices, bond yields, property prices and so on. This effectively transfers the financial risk from the corporation or government back to the employee. A similar effect is occurring economy-wide following the introduction of the superannuation guarantee levy. As people begin to rely more and more on the sums accumulated in their superannuation fund to finance their retirement, they will find themselves in the same position. The amount in their fund, and hence their standard of living in retirement, will depend on what happens to asset prices and on the performance of their fund manager. I don't wish to criticise the current arrangements for retirement incomes in Australia, because over time they will allow most people to retire on higher incomes than formerly. In addition, the government has not abdicated responsibility for longevity risk because it still provides the old age pension as a safety net for those who have little in the way of other income. The only point I wish to make is that for a large part of the population, their standard of living in retirement will depend to a significant extent on how the value of financial assets performs and hence 
they are more exposed to financial risk than under earlier arrangements. Most of the five developments I've outlined above have undoubtedly increased the efficiency of the financial sector, reduced the cost of borrowing and lending, and contributed to stronger economic growth. I don't wish to suggest that these financial developments have been a bad thing. They have clearly been beneficial for the economy. But like most things that increase the economy's growth potential, they also bring some risks. On balance, these developments mean that the economy is now exposed to more financial risk. If a major financial shock were to occur, such as a large fall in share or property prices, the effect on the economy would be greater than in earlier years. So the central question is whether booms and busts in asset markets are more likely to occur in the future. No one knows the answer to this, but there is no reason to believe that they will become less frequent or smaller. We know that since financial markets have been deregulated, we have seen some quite pronounced asset price booms and busts, the most notable being the Japanese bubble of the 1980s and the high-tech share market bubble in the United States and Europe in the late 1990s. Both of these were followed by recessions. In our own case, as I have outlined in earlier lectures, we had an equity and property boom and bust in the late 1980s and a house price boom during the past decade that had many of the characteristics of a bubble, but fortunately it was not followed by a bust. If it is likely that asset price booms and busts will be at least as common as during the past two decades and that their effect on the economy will be larger, what can monetary policy do about it? There was a time when we felt that monetary policy by returning the economy to low inflation, would have a stabilising effect on asset markets. I certainly thought that the excessive speculative activity in Australia in the late 1980s was partly caused by the fact that inflationary expectations had not yet been brought down to a low level. But the broader evidence does not support the view that low inflation will prevent booms and busts developing in asset markets. The boom of the late 1920s in the United States took place against a background of low inflation, as did the Japanese bubble economy, the US high-tech share market boom, and our own house price boom. So if low inflation does not provide any insurance, what should a central bank do if it suspects that a potentially unsustainable asset price boom is in the process of forming, particularly when the boom is being financed by debt? The question is usually raised as, should interest rates be increased specifically to prick a potential bubble? This question has been the subject of many papers and conferences over the past decade, which I will not attempt to summarise. Instead, I will offer a few simple thoughts that explain why central banks have had difficulty finding a solution to this problem. Many people have pointed out that it is difficult to identify a bubble in its early stages, and this is true. But even if we can identify an emerging bubble, it may still be extremely difficult for a central bank to act against it for two reasons. First, monetary policy is a very blunt instrument. When interest rates are raised to address an asset price boom in one sector, for example house prices, the whole economy is affected. If confidence is especially high in the booming sector, it may at first not be much affected by the higher interest rates, but the rest of the economy may be. Second, there is a bigger issue which concerns the mandate that central banks have been given there is now a widespread acceptance that central banks have been delegated the task of preventing a resurgence of inflation, but nowhere, to my knowledge, have they been delegated the task of preventing large rises in asset prices, which many people would view as rises in the community's wealth. Thus, if they were to take on this additional role, 
they would face a formidable task in convincing the public of the need. Even if the central bank was confident that a destabilising bubble was forming and that its bursting would be extremely damaging, the community would not necessarily know that this was in prospect and could not know until the whole episode had been allowed to play itself out. If the central bank went ahead and raised interest rates, it would be accused of risking a recession to avoid something that it was worried about, but the community was not. If in the most favourable case, the central bank raised interest rates by a modest amount and prevented the bubble from expanding to a dangerous level, and it did so at a relatively small cost in terms of income and employment growth, foregone, would this be regarded as good monetary policy? Almost certainly not, as the public would see only the short-term cost to output and employment, and probably some undershoot of the inflation target, and would not be aware of the boom and bust in asset prices that had been avoided. In all probability, the episode would be regarded by the public as an error of monetary policy because the counterfactual could never be observed. These considerations do not mean that asset prices are ignored altogether in the current monetary policy framework. They are taken into account insofar as they affect the level of economic activity and the prospective rate of inflation. For example, during the recent housing price boom in Australia, people felt their wealth increasing, so they increased consumption spending. At the same time, there was a rush to build houses and apartments, which also helped to push the economy along faster and raise the prices of new houses, building materials, white goods, furniture and so on. These effects were taken into account in the decisions to raise interest rates in 2002 and 2003 and to pause in 2004 when house prices stopped rising. In addition, the growth of credit cannot be ignored. While it is difficult to form a precise judgement about what the trend rate of growth of credit should be, the combination of fast credit growth and sharply rising asset prices should tell us something. At the very least, it should indicate that the prevailing interest rate is not viewed by borrowers as being high, or at least not high enough to deter them from using credit for speculative purposes. The interest rate decision is not the only decision that a central bank has to make in these circumstances. Even though it is difficult, I think it is possible to form a reasonably good idea of whether a potentially dangerous asset price boom is developing. While this assessment may not be held with enough confidence to allow the central bank to prick the asset price boom with interest rates, for the reasons outlined above, there are other ways of addressing the problem. Central banks have some credibility and authority which can be used in a public awareness campaign to make people recognise the risks they are taking in plunging into an overheated market. This campaign takes the form of speeches, parliamentary testimony and research papers, which can then be taken up by the media and spread more widely to the community. At the Reserve Bank, we had some success with this approach during the recent house price boom, as indicated by the statements emanating from the real estate industry at the time. But this still leaves the central bank with a very limited armoury with which to fight against a potentially dangerous asset price boom. The interest rate, which it does not have a clear mandate to use, and public persuasion, which is of limited effectiveness. How would it cope if it faced an asset price boom of the magnitude of those that occurred in the United States in the 1920s or Japan in the 1980s? Not very well, I expect, and it would probably be held largely responsible for the distress that accompanied the bubble's eventual bursting. It is still too early to judge whether the current approach to monetary policy 
will need to adjust to cope with evolving challenges. Looking back at the evolution of monetary and financial affairs over the past century shows that all policy frameworks have had to be adjusted when they fail to cope with the emergence of a major problem. The succeeding framework was then pushed to its limits, resulting in a new economic problem. The lightly regulated framework in the first two decades of the 20th century was discredited by the Depression and replaced by a heavily regulated one accompanied by discretionary fiscal and monetary policy. This in turn was discredited by the Great Inflation of the 1970s and was replaced by another lightly regulated one with greater emphasis on medium-term anti-inflationary monetary policy. This has acquitted itself well over the past 15 years and is still working effectively. But over the next decade or two will probably face the type of challenge I have outlined. I have tried in this final lecture to take a very long-term view, although in truth no one is very good at picking the next major epoch. We mainly react after the damage has been done. I am influenced by the fact that as the great inflation of the 1970s was building up from the mid-1960s, no one, including the central bank, had a mandate to prevent it. As we struggled to come to grips with it, governments took decisions that effectively gave the central bank a mandate and central banks worked out a framework that to date has been effective in dealing with it. No one, though, has a clear mandate at the moment to deal with the threat of major financial instability associated with an asset price boom and bust. Yet I cannot help but feel that the threat from that source is greater than the threat from inflation, deflation, the balance of payments and the other familiar economic variables that we have confronted in the past. Ian McFarlane with the sixth and final Boyer Lecture for 2006 and I hope you agree it's been an accessible overview of what's often regarded as fairly arcane material only understood by insiders so thanks to him for making that available for us all. We hope you've enjoyed them and of course you can find them all online at abc.net.au slash rn. The Boyer Lectures are produced by Scott Wales with technical production by Jennifer Parsonage.
ABC Radio National. More than 60 programs, more than 260 transmitters Australia-wide. And we're live on the net as well as media-on-demand streams. Find out how to get more out of Radio National. Go to abc.net.au slash rn. And for the full list of MP3 and podcast programs, abc.net.au slash rn slash podcast.